I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. This week, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Janet McKinley, founder and principal at Advanced Global Capital. They believe that the best way to reduce poverty is through sustained economic growth. And they believe that private capital, when invested well, can be a force for good. Advanced Global Capital puts capital to work in underserved communities worldwide by financing invoices for small and medium businesses who lack sufficient access to credit but need working capital to thrive. Their global reach is made possible by collaborating with investors who want both market rate returns and measurable positive impact that aligns with their values. And the goal of this season for More Than Profit has been to talk with leaders from various asset classes who are building impressive strategies to generate returns, but also supporting people and communities. Janet has been a pioneer, and it was a true pleasure to hear more about her story. I grew up in Ohio, uh, outside of Cleveland, out in the countryside. And it, uh, the house that I lived in, when uh, in, outside of Cleveland, was built because I was born and my parents already had three boys. And so they were living in one of those tiny houses that after World War II, you could get financing to build a house. So they had built one of those houses closer to downtown Cleveland where they had grown up. And then when I was born, I was like, no, there's no more room. So they went out farther and they found a place that they could build something economically. And growing up as a little kid, it was nirvana for me because in back of that house, you know, because they were just cutting out developments. And in back of our house was a gigantic, gigantic forest. And I was a total tomboy. So I was out there mucking around and climbing trees. And if my three brothers were driving me crazy, I'd joke, just take my book and go climb a tree and read for hours up there. But in any case, that was kind of the idyllic thing that kind of post-war narrative of happy families and housewives and all that stuff, that was my start. That was Mm. the base. And then the base all blew up because in the early 60s, there was a really big recession. And my dad was working at U.S. Steel and they decided to merge with another company and he was on the marketing side and they were doing all this cost cutting so he was fired. So now we yeah. have an unemployed dad and a housewife mom. When I say housewife, I just mean that in regards to her not having a paying job. But but all that time she was raising us. She was president of the Florence Crittenden's Home for Unwed Mothers. So she was really active on that. She and my father were adamant that every Saturday we drove back into Cleveland And all of us went to the Cleveland Music Settlement for music lessons because that was an integrated space that had Mm. started up to serve low income immigrants who came into Cleveland and they were they wanted this kind of education. So they did. They gave me the gift of hanging around kids my own age with every skin color and every language. And that was awesome. So so the. You know, all of that upbringing was in that early years was really solid, you know, creating a really solid base and and constantly reminding you of what your values are. So with this recession having taken place and my dad could not, he was not finding a job. He was really looking hard and he actually left home for about nine months to come east 
and uh, and look for a job because there were some relatives that had ideas that maybe he could you know get an in for an interview or whatever. So my mother was left at home. She was she just started to work at the department store in the knitting and notions section. So I mean, just because we had to have a job, you know, she had to have a, we had to have income. And uh, finally, when my dad got settled, we moved to New York. We had equity in the house, which enabled us to buy a house in, uh, you know, and, you know, we could figure out a house where the economics could work. And they were smart enough to pick one of the best school systems in the United States. And wow. they found one of the littlest, less, least expensive houses. <laughs> now, was that intentional? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. They couldn't have afforded. It was definitely intentional on the education. They, yeah, no, that's what I'm... Yes, absolutely. Nobody was going to be going to private school for us. Hmm. And uh, so they. it was brilliant what they did. But for me growing up in that environment, all of my friends' families had jillions of dollars. Uh, hmm. I literally, I loved spending time at my friends' houses because they had snacks that you know were non-essential sure. like yeah give me those doritos give me that you know whatever so no doubt. Um, and uh so that was kind of this gift that i had of a fantastic education when we moved so that move east out of a lot of turmoil for the family turned out to be a really good decision and then um Beyond that, if you graduate from one of the best high schools in America, then it helps you get into college. So I, I there was only one place I wanted to go. I, I only applied to Smith College in Massachusetts. <laughs> I wanted. Why is that? I'm just. Curious. I wanted to go to a women's college, and I also loved the campus. It's a beautiful place, and so uh, you know, if, when you go to a women's college, all the jobs are for women. So if you're at a co-ed college, then maybe there's a 50-50 chance that you are in charge of the, the radio programs on campus or the newspaper on campus or the fill in the blank, all the things that students take leadership in. Hmm. So it, you know, if you were lucky, which you, I'm sure you weren't in, back in those days at co-ed uh, colleges, it wasn't 50-50 women and, and guys on campus getting those roles. But you knew if you went to Smith College, you had a shot at any of those roles. That's interesting. So I, again, I found that uh, academically, it was fantastic. It was yeah. a beautiful place to live. The one challenge for me, frankly, was fitting in uh, socially because mm -hmm. most of the women that were there didn't were not on scholarship. And so I'd be sitting at the dinner table. I, I Here was my vision of Smith College. All these smart women, which they are, and that you'd be working on your paper with them at night around a table with a bottle of tequila in the middle of the table and you got your typewriter and you're writing and you're getting stuck and you ask your girlfriend, you know, what, what should I, where should I go from here? No, no, that, that did not happen. What happened around the table? was discussions about where are we going to go this weekend? Are we going to go to Amherst? Are we going to go to Dartmouth? <laughs> the guys, are we going to go to Harvard for the weekend? And I'm thinking all the time, I know where I'll be this weekend because mm. I'm working on campus as part of my scholarship. 
So I was mm. working back in the kitchen while they were eating, you know. So it was, um, and and I know that the black women who went to Smith College had their own feelings of alienation, but I was white, so I couldn't even sign up for that club. You know, yeah. I was kind of in this in, in between. And mm. one of the high spots for me at that time was I actually made friends with Yolanda King. So that was, she was like the bridge to, wow. to another group of people that didn't feel totally comfortable there. But mm. the education was fantastic. The professors were awesome. And it's because of Smith College that they, they, uh, the, the companies wanted to recruit women. If, you know, by then this is, this would have been 76. And so they had actually said, oh, we should send recruiters out around and see if we can hire some smart women. So that's, that's interesting. Like, uh, it's helpful to hear because I wasn't going to go in this direction quite yet. But uh, your experience in Smith, I've got to believe, has driven some of your understanding of philanthropy. Because so as I, I've done some research for this podcast, some of the things that you and your husband, but probably more driven by you, have focused on is really helping some of those underserved people uh, in their experiences at college and, and in other ways, whether Absolutely. that's Oxfam or whatever. So how, how did that, how has that shaped some of your philanthropy? What, what are you, what do you find yourself drawn towards given kind of your own experience? Well, it's, for me, it's one of the biggest chunks of what we do as you're right. You've done the research and you're seeing it. And, um, we, George, uh, George went to graduate school at UC Berkeley. Uh, when we got married, I moved, he was on the West Coast, I was on the East Coast, so I moved West. And I had been on the Smith board, but then that became more complicated. So I, I turned my focus to what was going on at UC Berkeley. And uh, there are there is so much opportunity for philanthropy focused at a first rate public university like that. I know, I know that Smith College is gonna be fine because a lot of those graduates, either they married money or they earned it themselves and they kept it. And now in their older years, they are sending it back out the door. So they're quite generous for Smith. And you know, I continue to support Smith, but Smith has these other people. UC Berkeley has, is in a terrible financial condition now. Hmm. The state really cut back on the funding for that university for reasons I don't understand. And so they are fighting, operating in a deficit, and then COVID comes along. So our focus uh, at UC Berkeley was particularly a notion of supporting transfer students into Berkeley. And this is where both of my husband and I both come out of the investment business. So we are always trying to think about, okay, we, we want to identify an entity that's worth funding and you know, can have a lot of impact. So how are we going to structure it? How, is the, how can we get the most impact for the investment that we make? And so in this case, we started a program a lot of years ago uh, called the Miller Scholars. And what it involves is transfer students with that have been in the UC system at you know junior colleges, basically within the UC system, and that their credits are accepted automatically if they transfer into UC Berkeley. So they can come in as uh, juniors and spend their second two years at UC Berkeley, and they graduate with a UC Berkeley diploma, which means a lot. It's huge. They get a good education, and they get they get to graduate in two years. And 
So our, as we were thinking this through, we're thinking, well, there's so many good aspects to this. It's good for Cal because they need more diversification. Uh, and it's good for throughput. You know, we're talking yeah. about throughput. So if two really good years at Cal get them settled in, maybe they'll go on and stay at Cal and get a scholarship for a graduate, uh, you know, additional thing. But uh, they leave, if they, even if they don't, you know, stay at Cal for further advanced education, they leave really strong. So, yeah. And if you're focused on, it wasn't a focus just on, uh, like, we want to have African-American students. The, the criteria was you had to be poor, you had to work hard, you had to show that you'd been working hard, and that you wanted to do something with your life that mattered. So it is the, we've got hundreds of them now, and we normally we do reunions in purpose, but uh, in person, but COVID not happening this year. But we literally have Miller scholars who come, who were coming to the dinners in prior years, and they'd have a, a, a young daughter with them so who is going to be a Miller scholar? So we're we're getting generational change. So on the academic side, that's that is our focus, and and it does come back to the notion that George went on a full scholarship to Penn and had to work as I did all the way through college. So on this one, we are absolutely aligned. About if you're willing to go to college and work hard, we are there for you. So. Oh, so one other thing, sorry, because I'm running on too long, but there are, the Cal has these events with donors and students. And uh, so we we have gone to a couple of them. And it in one of in one case, the uh, so they're in this room with the donors and the kid and the younger folks, and there are lots of people surrounding me and George. And some lady comes up to George on the side and says, so what what is that about and george said well these are miller scholars and uh and we're hanging out with them and she she kind of looked and she said oh she said you know we've given a bequest for uh you know scholarships for people who need them and george said well you know you can't you can't get to meet your scholars if you're dead <laughs> You don't get the fun of of hanging out without with your scholars if you're dead. So, yeah, that's a good point. I hope that some of the the bequest stuff could people should think about that. That, yeah, do it. Get the be a a living donor, be be active participants in the change, and 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 then you're going to be motivated by that too. So, exactly. And you know, just admit that you enjoy it, that it's it's a good thing. Yeah. well, and that's helpful. Like you said, you were going long on that subject, but I think that's great because honestly, the purpose of this podcast on some levels is to to really peel back the onion, so to speak, and, and really see the the purpose that drives people to create really amazing change in the world. And so I think, you know, your life story is part of the formation of advanced uh, global. Um, and so I think, you know, how, how did you go from Smith, you know, getting an undergraduate degree in history and a Fulbright scholar into the world of finance? You, you said investments, but, but, but not just, just investments. Like you weren't an, a wealth advisor, you weren't, which is not a bad thing, but I think yeah. you, you have been creating 
investment strategies. Like you, you've been doing that for for a very long time, and you've built an unbelievable uh, strategy to support people across the globe uh, while also getting fine. So how did you, how did you, how did that bridge occur for you? What did that look like? So I don't know if you remember or, or if they still ask this question of, of folks your age, but, but in my age, they would say, where, how, where do you envision yourself being, be, being in five years? And it was like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, my head of the history department, when I went off to go on the Fulbright at the end of, of my time at Smith, he, he, uh, advised the um, the history majors that were graduating that they better really go out and look for a job because it's going to be really hard with a history major. You're kind of like, now you're telling me that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little late. <laughs> but in fact, it's false. So mm. uh, again, so Camus said that good good luck is asking is getting the answer without asking the question. And so the example I'll give you is that there were lots of uh, job recruiters that came to Smith who were, at that time, who were looking to try to bring women into their, their companies, corporates. They were trying to do something good. I had the good fortune to sign up. I didn't know what any of these jobs were, none of them. Uh, so I, I signed up for an interview with somebody from uh, International Paper Company. Jack McDonough, head of the finance department. And uh, so he comes on campus and we're talking and, uh, and I said, look, wh why are you talking to me? I haven't, in, in my day, by the way, the women wanted to go work for law firms and consulting firms like McKinsey. That was kind of, that was the holy grail. I didn't want to do that. I didn't think I knew how to do that. I didn't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so Jack McDonough is asking me this stuff and I'm saying, why are you even interviewing me? And he said, well, he said, you know, business isn't that complicated. If you, if you hire smart people that are eager to learn, they'll figure it out. And he said, I've found that it's very, um, that women are very open to that. And we have, you know, we're very women friendly. And so, yeah, if you, you know, if you're interested, I think you ought to take the job. It was kind of, it's like, yeah, the answer is yes. <laughs> I don't know what that involves, but, and what it involves was crazy because yeah. my first job was to be working on foreign exchange hedging for asset liability uh, management for the outside, the U.S. subsidiaries. So I went down to NYU at night and started going to business school uh, to take the just the classes I needed, I didn't care about the degree, just the classes I needed to go to work and know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> and it, I, you know, so that was that well, was the first one of, of getting the answer without asking the question. And the second one was what took me into the investment business, which was that um, the uh, capital group was invested, had shares invested in their for their pension plan accounts in international paper. And they um, they met up with me to talk about the company. And then I went out west to talk to them and answer their questions about what was going on at the company. And then two weeks later, one of their senior people came to New York and called and said, could I come in and talk to you? And I said, sure, uh, the price of boxes hasn't changed in two weeks, <laughs> but if you wanna come in, sure. 
So what he, he said was, this is awkward because we do manage IP's pension fund, but we have an opening for a paper and forest products analyst at, at Capital Group. Would you be interested or would you, you know, consider it? And again, I said, well, I grew up in a very poor family, low-income family. We did, we did not own stocks. We, you know, they had life insurance policies. That was about it. But I would love to come out and you guys interview me. And if you think I can do the job, then I will give it a lot of thought. But honestly, hmm. I, I didn't know anything about the stock market. So, um, so that was the second thing. And then um, that job, International Paper was, I'm sorry, Capital Group was a wonderful, wonderful place to work. It's way bigger now than it, than it was when I, when I was there. It was still big then, but now it's really big. But well, what's interesting is like, uh, I think one of the threads is, is this notion of curiosity. So obviously you're, you're bright. Obviously you have uh, a great personality that I think you, you probably walk into rooms and, and people are excited to talk to you. Like, you know, some people, they don't struggle with some of those things, but I think your curiosity, the fact that you're just, you're, you're willing and wanting and desiring to constantly learn. And, and I, I love the questions you're asking, like, well, if you think that I can do it and you're just kind of like, you know, almost putting it back on these, these organizations yeah. to kind of like, you know, I'm willing to try and I'll, and I'll give you my best. But at the end of the day, I'm kind of like open-handed with whether or not I do this or not. Cause I actually generally like what I'm doing already, but I'm curious, you know, like, let's, let's try this. Um, which I think on some levels kind of carrying that forward, um, you know, you, you did a lot of those things, got into investments, built a really solid career, and then you found yourself in Vietnam. And, and I think has been, you know, what I've seen in some of my, my research at least has been, was pretty pivotal, the work you did with Oxfam and then later Grameen. And there was one of the quotes that I think that I found in your Smith Alumni Quarterly once where <clears throat> what, what moved you um, when you watched some of the stuff in, in Vietnam related to microfinance was the noticeable change in self-confidence and self-esteem yeah. among the women who had borrowed and repaid money. Yeah. It was less about the transaction itself, less about like the fact that they now had this money, but the, the, the self-confidence that that brought. Yeah. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I think that's when, when I see kind of what you're even, what you built advanced global capital now after Oxfam even, um, there's there's an element there. So this this idea of confidence, the, the 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 transactional nature. It's not just a money exchange, but you're really you're it's a transaction of value. And so for people in emerging markets, when when they receive that, th this boost that they receive, how how did that go for you? Uh, I'm, I'm, the experience I'm sure was just profound. Yeah, it really was. Um, and uh, I I must say that our focus our focus in microfinance um, has always been with women. There, there were some early days with early microfinance funds that were co-ed and uh, with maybe more men than women in the funds. And some of those went bust. And so one of the lessons that I learned just from observing that was, I want to work with women in this financial area. I just, I just. Have you been able to pinpoint why, why that was for you? Like, and not necessarily for you personally working, wanting to work with women, but why some of the co-ed? Yeah, I, well, first of all, it's still kind of the case. I, mean, I don't want to be a pain in the neck about it, but, you know, there's, if you're in a room with, with, with uh, high powered men, 
they tend to take up a lot of oxygen in the room. <laughs> I don't have any interest in going up against that. You know, it's just that's awesome. I'd be, I'd be rather. I'm one of those people that just kind of goes, "Oh, let me watch this. This is going to be funny." <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of my take. And you know, it's partly too. If you grow up with three other older brothers, you know, men are. I got no problem with men. I love them. I love my brothers. I know all their faults, their traits, their egos. Uh, so, um, I, I, there were some specific microfinance funds that we actually tracked and one of them had been just men and it did not work. And the Philippine, um, man who launched the, the, the fund was really, you know, it was a really hard thing for him because there, there were just all these defaults. Hmm. He came back from that experience and we got to know him because he had started, a little pilot program for microfinance in Vietnam. He's the one who started it. He was a consultant to Oxfam. That's how we met him. And he said, you know, I've had my experience with men in uh, in micro lending and now I'm going forward. He, he actually mortgaged his house to stay in the game so that he could put some money in. And then Oxfam put money in and uh, he said, you know, I'm just going to go with women here and see how that works. So at which which it's worked really well because women just they don't default. They don't they take responsibility for those loans. They will do everything to to uh, pay back that loan. And, yeah, uh, I've noticed that myself as well. So I'm not I don't mean to be men bashing. It's I don't that's not the point of it. But but it is just it's just culturally true, at least there. And, uh, do you think some of that has to do with um, just historically? I, I mean, as as a the, the sense of like, and it's it's an innate entitlement where you know there's just an ex, an expectation that that things are going to come my way because I'm a man. Um, yeah. And I think what I've seen with women, and I have four daughters, just this like I'm not going to I'm not going to be the one to let this fail. Yeah. And so like there's this like, almost like this preciousness to receiving that like I have been entrusted with something and I'm not even going to take it if I don't think I can make it work. Mm-hmm. Number 1. And number 2, I'm going to do everything I can for the sake of not just myself but for my community, for my sisterhood to to make sure this is successful. Yeah. I'm <laughs> sure that that's true. I agree with you. I think the other aspect is that maybe for men when they when they are making an investment or putting their money in a in a particular institution, that that's, um, it's not that personal, it's business. Hmm. And so interesting. Uh, if business is not going well, you can walk, right? I'm walking, I'm out of here, this is not working. That is not the mentality of, of women that I have encountered in lots of, lots of places, not just in emerging markets, but particularly there, because they have to hang together for, to stay strong. That's a really good point. So they cannot be individuals. I mean, they can't succeed as individuals. They need everybody's help. So if they were to just, if one of the women who borrowed money just said, eh, I'm not paying it back, that would be just, that'd be anathema. That would be totally against their culture. Uh, the, The other women would be incredibly displeased. So it would it would hurt in the community. It's just, you're living in this community. So um, so we came back saying, you know, we're gonna we're really gonna support women as much as we can, and uh, you know the men will get support too, but uh, we're gonna direct our funding that way. 
so how did you how did you go? You know, so on this season, your you, background, I could I could take an episode ever over each of the things that you've learned. Um, yeah. And so that's that's one of the travesties of just kind of trying to, but but I with advanced global capital, I I think you've built an unbelievable thing, and I think, you know. Early on, Oxfam, Grameen, there, there is a true kind of concessionary nature. Like we're supporting microfinance. We're helping these women emerging markets. Um, but that's not the case with kind of uh, advanced global capital. You, you've you built a, a strategy. So talk to me about, um, you know, even on your website, it says the best way to reduce poverty is through sustained economic growth. And so like how we think about this fund that you've built how, how did you build this and 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 why 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 do you feel it's possible to to get the to get returns for your investors while also supporting uh these these small and medium in, enterprises yeah. across the globe yeah yeah that's a that's a good question well when i was one of the things i looked at after microfinance had you know spent a, a good decade because I was in this for, in the early days, so I, I spent at least 10 years focused on that. And then you get data, so that's interesting. And um, one of the things I saw was that, uh, my, I never thought microfinance was a silver bullet. Uh, you know, give you, give, lend somebody 10 bucks, she gets a baby pig, and next thing you know, she's running her own brick factory in the village. I never thought that kind of thing was happening. But what I did see was that, um, it was, you didn't see a lot of women graduating from the informal economy to the formal economy. And hmm. my contention is that the, the folks that for many good reasons cannot graduate or haven't been able to yet, then what they should be receiving is really smart uh, support in terms of strategies to help them and also funding of smart strategies, grant making. So I, one of the things I learned at, at, at Oxfam when I was chair there is you got to think about the tool in the toolbox for the job you want to do. So mm -hmm. if it's in this informal economy, you want to make sure that the programs are well-structured and the grant money, you want to hold accountable for the use of the grant money as if it was an investment in the regular, in the, you know, the rest of the world. But you don't do it in order to stop investing in them. You, it's a signal that something is not working. So look back at how you're developing that, that plan that you have that you're funding. So the question is, define what you're trying to focus on and make a change for the better in. And then what is the best tool in the toolbox for it? So my conclusion was that, uh, frankly, microfinance in, the, in this more recent years kind of turned into a bit of a monster because it got it got into that bigger 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 and then hey we can launch it on the stock exchange and then we can do you know and uh, so then what what happened in a lot of cases that women were getting a pitch for a loan from lots of different microfinance banks and they overborrowed just like people in the US take out too many credit cards and can't pay them back and it was like, oh, God, why don't you just stay in your lane? But uh, so, so what I was looking at is what kind of financing could I do, you know, start a firm to do, which is in the formal economy, and, but that will include 
the women who are just out of the of the informal economy. So they've started their businesses, they're starting to get a track record. But guess what? And 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 the business is good. Let's let's that's the scenario. And the business is good. Where does she get the financing to grow this business that looks good? Banks are not women friendly. And there's one very busy well, there's a couple of basic reasons. One is just cultural about who who should be doing business. That hasn't changed as much as I would hope over the last decades. But the other one's very pragmatic. Women typically do not hold collateral to anything. They don't they don't have uh, a collateral on the house, you know, so they got no, no nothing there or a car or a piece of land. They got nothing. So why could they expect to go into a bank and ask for a business loan with no collateral. Who wants to deal with her? So then that took me down the rabbit hole of saying, well, there's other ways to do this where the woman wouldn't have to have collateral. Because, and so let's go back to Mesopotamia, ancient Mesopotamia, where you had the initiation of factoring, of financing trade routes. A factor, that's just that odd word, just came from, it was a word for agent. And there were agents along the trade route. And as your goods got delivered along the trade route, you got paid out in, in, in um, performance. So agents were giving you money as you went along the way. So I thought, well, if a woman runs a business where she can sell her invoices, because th the issue is, okay, I got the business, but now I've got to wait so many days to get paid. You know, 60 days would be, you know, lightning speed. In the, in the old days, 30 days was more normal. Like when I started out in the investment business, corporates paid their bills in 30 days. Not anymore. They pay in 60. During this COVID, they've been paying in 90 or 120. So, yeah. But the, the point is that if she's got invoices from reputable uh, buyers, customers of hers, they, they can be monetized. She can sell them at a discount to that intermediate financial intermediary, that factor. So she can get her cash up front. And then when the invoices are paid, the money goes back into that financial intermediary. So uh, that's what... And they can haggle about what is the discount rate on the value of that invoice. So I thought, you know, this is how you get over that hurdle because she doesn't have to have collateral. Yeah. Uh, and the other, the other thing that a factor does, which is very helpful, particularly for women-owned businesses, is let's say the, the, um, the buyer of the stuff that she's made is she's delivered it, it's all in good order. They're, they're delaying the payment, she's upset. I'll tell you this, she does not go home to her husband and complain about it because, it, you know, I'm talking about the low end of this business that's on the margin of informal, because he will say, that's why I told you not to do that business. <laughs> He's not gonna say, oh, how can we work on this? I'm sure I can help you. So. What happens is that factoring company, that financial intermediary in the middle, if they're doing their job right for her as a client, they are calling up the buyer and saying, well, you, you owe this money. What are you doing? You know, and, and they'll say, well, 
the color of the shirts were not right. Okay, well then we'll I'll talk to her and I'll we'll fix it and whatever. So that a good financial intermediary does that and does it on a commercial basis, which means that it can be sustained. So there are so many slots in this in this continuum that need to be in place. Some that should involve grant money is charitable grant money to support people that will go out and give these women businesses a business advice on startup. Use grant money for that. That's a great that's a great thing to do. And for people that have retired from the business and want to still be out there and they they get it, send them yeah. out the door to help with these folks. So that was well, that was the origin that was the concept initially. And then the question was simply could you start a fund where you're lending money to these financial intermediaries but with very strict conditions on the terms and very and a lot of clarity around the fact that you must to the best of your ability be focused on women run or owned businesses you can't be uh, financing economic activity in any of the stuff that's whether it's metals or mining or oil or gas or any of that stuff so that we will not put our money in those things and um and so part of the impact is not just with that small business, it's can we help those intermediary factoring companies up their game? Because a lot of them are not that big themselves. And the banks, the banks do plenty of factoring, but they do it in the, in the, big, in the big arena. They're financing the oil and the gas and the this and the that. And we've seen, we've seen recently a major blow up in that space with, uh, with a, a company called, a guy named Greensill, who's now all over the papers. So if you, if you see those articles and they're talking about trade finance, I just go like, oh, <laughs> Well, and to your point, like the banks have historically fact, uh, focused on where, where there's collateral. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think that's what I love about kind of what you're talking about. And kind of earlier in the podcast, you were just talking about this, this notion of a toolbox yeah. and making sure we're pulling out the right tool for the right, right job, so to speak. And, and you're not saying grants don't have a role. Microfinance doesn't have a role, but it's, and, and that those businesses don't matter. It's just, how do we, how do we create the right tools or how do we identify the right tools to support them, to help them grow and scale and recognize that there are still gaps. Like we can't, I think oftentimes when I talk to people, they just assume banks do all of that. Yeah. You know, and, and there's just, and then they, they don't, cause that's their own human experience, right? They can go in, they have credit, they can get a bank account, they can, they can take out a loan. And I think they, they forget that most people don't have that experience. And yeah, and, you know, from again, what I, I really um, value the intersection of my Oxfam days as chair with all the years sure. I spent in the investment business at Capital Group, because I went and called on all the big uh, banks in, you know, the Philippines or fill in the fill in the blank on the developing markets. Yep. They do not want to lend to anybody that is the least bit uh, perhaps uncertain about the credit credit worthiness. So what exactly. they want to do, if in its most, the idyllic way for these banks is that you bring the money in the door, 
in the deposits and then you go out and you put the money to work in as safe a thing as you can get and you just earn the spread. So in the safe as you can get is the, is the spectrum where it's not the thing that is most needed for financing by definition. So they're just trying to go out there and just not do something that's too, too far out there in terms of you know, what they view as the risk, even if it could be incredibly impactful if it was done well, whether it's an energy project or solar project or whatever. But really where they wanted the sweet spot is just earn the spread. And yeah. I thought, you know, that's, that's what it is. So don't, don't look to the banks to be the solution. Uh, well, and the other thing with banks is, and and I've talked about this before on a previous episode, but um, this is one of the unintended consequences of hyperconsolidation. You know, I mean, we used to, ha- I mean, banks did do this, you know, especially where there's regional relationships, yeah. because like they they had to, because they're, you know, they couldn't sit back and just enjoy the spread. They actually had to get out and work with these businesses and, know and make them. sure that they're exactly. And know we them. know our factors. The folks that you may be reading about in the paper for the next X weeks, all the, all it was to them was a transaction that got sliced and diced and securitized and put into funds and people know God nothing about what is in there. That is exactly. not, I have zero interest in, that is the casino. I, you mm. know, we did it with, you know, <laughs> that is the casino. You know, we did it with stocks. Now some folks have tried to do it with invoices. It makes me really ill to see that. But uh, I just want to stay in the real economy with real financing that's needed where, you know, the, the grants just aren't, you know, sufficient and the real financing can be structured so it makes sense. Uh, so that there's, it works out for both the, the lender and the borrower. Uh, so Janet, uh, we I'd love to keep talking, um, but I and I want to, you know, kind of close with a question that I've been asking folks um, this episode specifically. I think given your background and kind of all of the different ways that you've worked in this space and seen how microfinance works and doesn't work, how banking works and doesn't work, I'm I'm really curious because I think there's we're in this moment at least in the media and in conferences and such where people are talking about this idea of impact investing and ESG going mainstream. Um, you know, there's been this hope for a season, but I think there's this real moment where people are like, oh my gosh, we're almost there. We're, we're, we're getting there. And I think that's a good thing because I think obviously we want to push towards broader adoption of people thinking and thoughtfully about how their money impacts people and communities. But there are always unintended consequences. So I think from your perspective in the work that you've done and how you're leading uh, at Advanced Global and, and other things, what what it, in in this moment kind of gives you a pause as you think about that that idea, and then what are you hopeful for? What are you as you look to the future, where we are in 2021, coming out of COVID, coming out of kind of four years of crazy uh, public policy? Like what what gives you hope for the future as we think about this integration of values and people really aligning money with purpose and 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 really pursuing returns? I think that's the thing that we're trying to really hammer home here is there are really smart people that care deeply and are trying their best to work with people in communities at the human level mm-hmm. while also returning profit to their to their to their LPs and their investors and i think that's an important thing uh, so i'm curious what your perspective is well for starters i think the LPs that you get the 
you get the outcomes that you deserve by who you choose as your LPs. Hmm. You know, you can create problems for yourself if it's not clear uh, what the LPs really want. So, for example, when we launched AGC, when interest rates were higher back in the day, you know, we had a range, a, a rate of return range, and uh, we, you know, we were explaining that the the invoices generally in the portfolio, the invoices were rolling on and rolling off and so on. And I made it really clear every time we talked to a potential new investor that this is not a cash machine. If that's what you think it is, that it's, you know, very short-term financing and it's, you know, it's liquid and so on. If that's what you, you're thinking, that is not a good fit for us because uh, that it's just not, it's not of interest to me. And, um, and a lot of times cash machines do not work out too well, especially if there's a call on a fund. So uh, <laughs> I think what's really important is that the investors are clear about the rate of return. You know, there's the rate of return you want, and then there's the rate of return that is um, realistic. And then there's the rate of return where you're saying, well, Realistically, I could get this higher number, but it's not, but the money's not going to be directed to the thing I'm trying to accomplish socially or economically for whatever the entities are. So I'm going to, I'm going to thread the needle. So maybe I'll take a somewhat lower return, expected return, because I think that the money put to work is going to have a really high impact return. To learn more, check out advancedglobalcap.com. Thanks again for listening to More Than Profit. And if you've liked what you've heard, do us a favor by subscribing and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bryce Butler with Access Ventures. Check out our work at accessventures.org. Thanks for listening.